Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say a special thank you to our online donors who make this podcast possible. Today we are looking at Holy Saturday, and this episode is entitled The Grave and the Pandemic. Every week at Paradox Church, we begin our sermons with the same statement. The statement is, sermons at Paradox are designed to start discussions and not end them. We feel this is important to state every week because when most people attend church for the first time, they assume that what the pastor has to say is the authoritative word on the scripture we are reading. Therefore, you must get in line and agreement with the pastor in order to be part of the church. We don't find that particularly interesting at Paradox. Instead, we hope that these sermons inspire you to think critically and thoughtfully about what you believe and why you believe it. And if you think about what we talk about on this podcast or in church, and it makes you consider more carefully what it is that you believe, well, then we have done our job. And that thing that you may believe is different than what I believe, but the point for us is not to get everybody on the same page. The point for us is for us to engage the discussion and be part of the agreements or disagreements as we think about what it means to love each other and love God in the year 2020. Sermons at Paradox are designed to start discussions and not end them. I tell you this because this is my sermon from the day before Easter, and most pastors on Easter weekend want to tell you that Jesus is risen, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is alive, all with a copious amount of exclamation marks. But I am warning you that one of the central premises of my sermon on this podcast is that Resurrection Sunday is overrated. And with those words, I have a feeling that I am going to light up Twitter with all kinds of flame emojis, and people will retweet these ideas with hashtag disrespect, hashtag he went there, hashtag if Stephen A. Smith was a pastor. Now, if I just typed the words Resurrection Sunday is overrated on Twitter, I think it would prove that I am in fact thirsty for retweets. But the difference between Twitter and a sermon is that Twitter is limited to 280 characters. As opposed to a sermon, uh, I have 30 to 40 minutes to tell you why I personally believe that Resurrection Sunday is overrated and why this overrating has caused all kinds of problems for Christians in America in the year 2020. So let's go back to last week's episode where I talked at length about the crucifixion and different atonement theories that have circulated in and out of the church for 2,000 years of our history. My main point behind that sermon was that God suffers with us. And we read the story about how Jesus was crucified on a cross and died shortly before sunset. We pick up this story in John chapter 19, verse 38, and we'll be reading all the way to chapter 20, verse 1. John writes, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. 
Nicodemus, who had had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The very next verse is John 20, verse 1, where he writes, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. And from there, John goes on to tell us about Resurrection Sunday. Now, if you're like me, you read this passage of Scripture and you say, hang on a minute. Here we read about Jesus being buried on Friday, and then all of a sudden we are transported to Sunday. Why does John skip over Saturday? And if John could hear that question, I believe he would respond with something along these lines. He would say, Craig, there wasn't a whole lot that happened on Saturday. To which I would say, of course not. But in that moment, John, didn't that day last forever? The day that you thought that Jesus was gone for good? That day, the day that John doesn't even mention, is known within the Christian calendar and Christian faith as Holy Saturday. The day that Jesus Christ is dead. That he lays in a tomb and nothing happens. And when I look at Holy Saturday, there are three words that come to mind. And I would like to use these three words as a framework for the rest of this episode to talk about what Holy Saturday is truly about and how it is helpful to us in 2020 and why it proves that Resurrection Sunday is in fact overrated. Those three words are doubt grief, and death. So let's begin with doubt. To talk about doubt, I want to tell you about a Russian author from the 19th century, a man named Fyodor Dostoevsky. He wrote a book called The Idiot, which is one of his most famous works that was published in 1869. Now, while this book is a novel, it references real events and real things in our human experience. Specifically, there is one character, a man named Rogogin, who possesses a copy of a painting that exists in our real life today. The painting is by an artist named Hans Holbein the Younger, and this painting is referred to several times within the book, The Idiot. While Rogogin owns the painting, he is not the main character of the story. The main character is a man named The Prince, and The Prince is an optimistic faithful character who is a Christian by nature. There is one scene in the book in which the prince goes to Rogogin's house and he sees this picture painted by Hans Holbein the Younger. And he says these words to Rogogin. He says that picture, that picture, why a man's faith might be ruined by looking at that picture. After a pause, Rogogin says, so it is. What kind of painting would cause someone to lose their faith? 
Well, if you have a moment while you are listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to look up this painting. And if you can, find a picture of the painting as it's hung in Switzerland today with its frame, because the frame is very much a part of this piece of art. Now, the art that I'm talking about is by Hans Holbein the Younger, and the title is The Body of the Dead Christ in the Tomb, and it was painted in 1522. If you are unable to look up this painting, then allow me to describe it to you. This is a painting where the frame is the size of a coffin. And as you look through the frame, you realize that it is almost like we are looking through the side of a coffin to a profile view of the entire body of Jesus and Christ. Now, Jesus is not powerful. Jesus is not glowing. Jesus's eyes are instead rolled to the back of his head. There are scars on the body of Jesus. Jesus is frail. Jesus is weak. And Jesus is dead. What Hans Holbein does in this picture is he shows us what Jesus Christ looked like on Holy Saturday. And this was deeply disturbing to Fyodor Dostoevsky, the man who wrote that book, The Idiot. Dostoevsky's biographer, a man named Joseph Frank, wrote these words in 2010 about when Dostoevsky saw that painting in person. Here are the words from his biography. He writes, In Holbein the Younger, Dostoevsky sensed an impulse so similar to his own to confront Christian faith with everything that negated it and yet to surmount this confrontation with a rekindled, even if humanly tragic, affirmation. Why is this depiction of the dead body of Christ so challenging to Dostoevsky and ultimately so challenging to us? I believe it's challenging to us because we as Christians have this verse that's very well known in Romans chapter 6. When the Apostle Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Most Christians I know love this verse. And they love this verse because it reminds them in their minds that God created the heavens and the earth. And God had a plan for all of us. And this plan unfolded in the Garden of Eden. But then our great ancestors, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, and God punished their rebellion with the consequence of death. So the reason, according to many Christians, that we have death today is because it's a consequence of sin. This is widely believed throughout all of Christendom. But then we look at this picture, this painting by Hans Holbein the Younger, and we stop for a second. We say, wait a second. If the wages of sin are death, then why did Jesus die? Because he was sinless, wasn't he? So this painting represents the larger idea that's at the core of Holy Saturday. And it takes this statement that Christians say so confidently that death is a consequence of sin, and it challenges it, and it turns it into a question that we all ask when we consider seriously what's happening on Holy Saturday. Is death a consequence of sin? Because if it is, then Jesus probably should have avoided death, right? 
And this painting challenged Dostoevsky's faith, much like Holy Saturday challenges the faith of Christians in America today. When you consider how challenging the idea of Holy Saturday is, it becomes very apparent why Christians love Resurrection Sunday. Christians love to talk about how Jesus Christ rose from the dead, conquered the grave, and gave hope for all of humanity. Christians love to tell the story of Jesus' resurrection. So they will tell you about Sunday, and they often reference what happened on Friday. Friday was the day that Jesus was crucified. But Friday is often told as a prequel to what happens on Sunday. And when Christians look closely at what Jesus says on the cross in all four Gospels, it's rather disturbing. And rather than focus on those disturbing words of Jesus feeling the absence of God, Christians will tell you about how Friday was ultimately good because it was the moment of Jesus' sacrificial death. So when Christians tell you the story of Easter, they will focus on Sunday and maybe sprinkle in a little bit of Friday to give some context. And this is why I believe that Resurrection Sunday is overrated. It's because Christians talk about Sunday in isolation. And just like John writing his gospel, Christians today skip over Holy Saturday because Holy Saturday, the day that Jesus was in the tomb, is too disturbing for us to think about. Resurrection Sunday is overrated because Christians like to think about Resurrection Sunday in isolation. But when you look closely at the entirety of this weekend, there is something incredibly valuable when you consider all of Resurrection Weekend. When you start on Thursday and you realize that all of this begins at a meal with Jesus and his closest friends celebrating God's presence in their life. From there, we move to Friday, which in my opinion is a day of lamentation, where we talk openly about our anger toward the absence and the lack of presence of God in our lives. Saturday is a day filled with doubt and grief and death. And Sunday is a day of hope, optimism, resurrection, and ultimately love. And when you look at all four days of Resurrection Weekend, from Thursday all the way to Sunday, we realize that Resurrection Weekend in its entirety is a microcosm of the full human experience. There's room for lots of different things to happen if you keep all of those parts together. But when you take one out, it all of a sudden rings superficial or shallow or hollow. Most Christians focus on Sunday because they tell you that the resurrection of Christ gives humanity all of the answers. You can have confidence in Christ's resurrection, they will say. And on Sunday, Christians will tell you, there is no room for atheists because you either believe the resurrection occurred or you didn't. But let's turn around for just a second and go back to Saturday. Go back to that day that Jesus is in the tomb and recognize a very simple truth about Holy Saturday. Everyone was an atheist on Holy Saturday. There isn't one gospel that tells us, hey, Peter believed despite the doubts that Jesus was going to rise from the dead tomorrow. 
There isn't one epistle that tells us, remember Mary, she still had faith on Holy Saturday. No, Holy Saturday is the day that everybody doubts the goodness of God. Everybody doubts what they used to believe about Jesus. And Peter, James, John, Mary, the other Mary, the other other Mary, none of them believed that Jesus was coming back. And if someone were to say, oh, there's no room for atheists on Sunday, I would say there's no room for Christians on Saturday. (laughs) And either of those days taken in isolation is dangerous. But when you put them together, we start to recognize that atheists and doubts aren't people that are out there. They are very much a part of our tribe. They are very much a part of our Christian tradition. And I think the reason that Christians despise atheists so much is because they represent the doubts that they so closely hold in their own minds. We keep Holy Saturday as part of our Christian tradition to remind ourselves that everyone loses faith at some point. If a death leads you to question God's existence, then you are living in Holy Saturday. And here we are in the midst of this pandemic with just a staggering amount of death that is hard to comprehend and hard to grieve and people are dying in rapid numbers. Just this past week, we passed the first time where more than 2,000 Americans died in one day from this virus. Not only that, but we also passed 100,000 deaths worldwide because of this virus. And if you're looking at all of this death and you're starting to question whether God is in control, whether God has power to fix this, whether God actually cares about us, just know that in those moments that those doubts are not a betrayal of the faith, but those doubts are very much a part of the faith. And in that moment, you are living in Holy Saturday. What this teaches us is that doubting the existence of God actually helps us to understand the existence of God. And to my brothers, my sisters, and friends in Christ, I would say to you that if you find yourself filled with doubt right now, then you are living the Easter story. Which brings us to our second word, which is grief. About a month ago here in California, we were told that it was time for us to shelter in place. Now, we hadn't had a lot of experience about what it means to shelter in place, but we began to dream of the opportunities that this new mandate would afford us. I remember thinking, man, I'll be able to write sermons with relative ease. There's not a lot of things happening around the office when it's at home. So these sermons will be easier than ever to write. Not only that, but there's several projects I want to get done at my home. I now have a bunch of time. I will be able to do them now that I don't have social engagements to go to. And after a month in, you know what I have found? I have not gotten done nearly as much as I thought I would. I am not very productive. Not only that, but these sermons are incredibly difficult to write. And it's here that I had to ask myself a question. Why on earth is it so hard for me to be productive? 
I have more time than I ever have to be able to do these things. And it's harder than ever before. Well, to answer that question, I want to tell you a few stories. The first story takes place at the end of 2019. Now, whenever the end of the year approaches, my wife and I will reminisce on the year that just passed by talking about the highs and the lows that we experienced together as a married couple. And when we were looking back at 2019, the number one highlight for both of us was by far and away a ski trip we took to Mammoth Mountain with my brother and sister-in-law, their kids, and my parents. The reason this trip was such a highlight was because my daughter, who had a lukewarm experience skiing before, got to ski with her cousin Levi for the first time, and she fell in love with the sport of snow skiing. By fell in love with, I mean she would go nonstop from the time the lifts open until the time the lifts close, asking to take one more run each time she would go up the mountain. Not only that, but it was snowing, it was cold, it was blowing. She didn't complain because she was having so much fun skiing with Levi. They would tell each other jokes, they would laugh. She would get pushed by him to ski better and he would be pushed by her to ski better as well. It was a great time. And when I say that we would stay out there until the lifts closed, that's only a half truth. <laughs> because what would happen was, the kids would wear us out as parents. And so we'd have to start telling them the lifts were closing, even though they actually weren't. <laughs> Not my best moment as a parent, but I was tired. As soon as that trip came to a close at the end of January, 2019, my brother and I said, this has been great. Let's do this again. So we planned ahead. We decided that the best time for us to go back to Mammoth with our kids and our parents back together and have a great Mammoth week would be March 15 to 20 in the year 2020. Well, I have some news for you. That was not a great week to go back to Mammoth because Mammoth Mountain suspended all operations on March 14, the day before we were supposed to go. And I tell you all of this because when we talk about this season of quarantine, I look back at these pictures from the ski trip in January 2019 and the trip that we missed out on in 2020, and I only have one thought. Canceling trips sucks. Now, you may be surprised that I'm using the word sucks, and I'll tell you why. The word sucks actually has its origin in the Hebrew language, and it means terrible beyond all recognition. Yes, canceled trips suck. Another story to talk about why it's hard to be productive. Around May of last year, NPR ran a story about a musical artist named Kishibashi. Now the article talks about how Kishibashi used the history of Japanese internment to explore America today. And I was intrigued by the article, so I went and I listened to the album and I loved it. It's one of those albums that you listen to and you think, why hasn't anyone written this already? <laughs> it's, it's just simple, gorgeous, complex, and beautiful all at the same time. But Kishibashi isn't much of a household name in America today. Surprise, surprise. Um, and I, I'll tell you, it's been a struggle to connect with other fans of his. That all changed just a couple of months ago when Dave and Kendra Nelson invited us over to their house 
And we were sitting on the back porch and we somehow ended up on the conversation of musical artists we'd seen in concert that put on a great show. It was there that Dave and Kendra said, well, Kishibashi puts on one of the best shows we've ever seen. I sat bolt upright in my chair and I said, Kishibashi, you've heard of him? And they said, yes, we've been a fan for quite a while. And I said, oh, wow, I've, I've never met another fan of his. And they started introducing me to the deep cuts of Kishibashi. And I will tell you, deep cuts of Kishibashi are deep. <laughs> but later that afternoon, after we talked about this for a while, later that afternoon, Dave and Kendra went on his website they found out he was going to play a concert in Orange County on April 1, and we bought tickets and secured babysitting to go on a double date to see Kishibashi on April 1, 2020. <sighs> the coronavirus hit, and the Kishibashi concert on April 1 was canceled. I tell you this, because canceling concerts sucks. We had babysitting lined up. This was going to be our night out. I was looking forward to this and it never happened. A third story is that one of the major grounding rituals in my life is going to church with people like you. Every Saturday we get together, we sing songs, we share ideas. I try to make you laugh. You mostly look at me like, really, we're going here? And I love it, right? There's something grounding in being able to get together and be part of this community in person. But since March 7, we haven't had church in person. And whenever we cancel church in person, it sucks. On Sunday, we were supposed to have our Easter sunrise service at Appleton Ranch. This is one of the highlights of the year. This was going to be the fifth year in a row we did this. But we had to cancel our Easter sunrise service because of this virus. And to my brothers, my sisters, my friends, canceling Easter sunrise services sucks. It's terrible, right? And when you look at this whole virus by itself and all of the death and the lost jobs and the financial hardships and everything else, there's only two words that can summarize this whole situation. This sucks. And when we ask the question, why is it so hard to be productive? I believe that the answer for me personally is because I'm grieving. I'm grieving the canceled concerts. I'm grieving the canceled trips. I'm grieving the canceled church, the Easter sunrise services. I'm grieving this complex virus that involves death and government leaders who refuse to accept responsibility. I'm grieving all of it. And you may hear me saying these words and you may say, really, Craig? Really? Are you really grieving because of a canceled Kishibashi concert? To which I would say, yes, I am. And to understand why that is, I think we need to define what grieving is. Grieving is not just tears. Instead, we grieve whenever we feel the loss of something or someone we love. And while there are varying degrees of grieving, every time we experience loss, even if it's small, it's still us 
grieving that loss. Now, someone could be listening to this podcast and saying, Craig, aren't you aware that there are people who are burying family members and you have the gall to get on this podcast and tell us about your canceled trip? I would say, I, I get that. I'm not saying that I have it worse than anyone else, but we're all grieving right now because we've all lost something in the midst of this virus. And something that we do as humans that is not healthy is we compete with each other's grief. And we have this idea that if you're not grieving the most, then you shouldn't be grieving at all. You should be thankful for what you have. I have to tell you, that is a very unhealthy way to go about this. Grief is not a competition. And while I have it better than some, I don't have it quite as good as others. And the worst thing I can do is think to myself, unless I have the most amount of grief on the planet, I'm not going to grieve. <laughs> Come on. Well, this isn't a competition. We're not, we're not here to see who has it worse than the other. We're all experiencing loss. And to validate and accept that, is an important part for our mental well-being during this season of quarantine. Now, grief is often shunned or shamed within the Christian community. And the reason for this is when we talk about Resurrection Sunday, we often think about Jesus coming out of the tomb bold and confident and strong and filled with hope. Many Christians I know have this idea that resurrection solves grieving. It brings a resolution to the openness that grieving endures. And for this reason, because there is such an emphasis placed on Resurrection Sunday and isolation, it leads Christians to saying horrible things at funerals. One thing that's horrible that I've heard at funerals is a Christian say to someone who is grieving, God won't give you more than you can handle. Ugh. The reason this is terrible is because someone is grieving at a funeral. A Christian feels uncomfortable with their grief, so they say God won't give you more than you can handle to make the Christian feel good about themselves and their grieving rather than grieve alongside the one who is mourning. But if we take Holy Saturday as an integral part of the resurrection story and resurrection weekend, it teaches us that if we are grieving, then at that moment, we are living in Holy Saturday. When John skips over Holy Saturday in his gospel, he skips over all of the grieving that the heroes and early fathers and mothers of the church endured when they buried Christ. Pause and think for a moment about all of the tears that were shed, all of the loss that was felt when they buried their friend who they believed would save them from the Roman Empire. If we are grieving, at that moment then we are living in Holy Saturday. Elizabeth Gilbert talked about this when she was being interviewed by Oprah. Now, in my opinion, the ultimate marker of success in American society is to be interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. And Elizabeth Gilbert has written a book you've probably heard of called Eat, Pray, Love. Now, on this particular day in 2018, Oprah was interviewing Liz Gilbert not about Eat, Pray, Love, but about what it was like to bury 
Liz Gilbert's lover. What she went through, what she wept over, and what she learned from the loss of a woman that she loved. You see, Liz Gilbert was in love with another woman. Her name was Rhea. And throughout this interview, she kept talking to Oprah about how beautiful the life of Rhea was, how Rhea had inspired her in so many ways, and what it was like to be by her side in the midst of this battle with cancer. Oprah heard all these things, and through tears, she asks her questions about what it was like to see all this stuff. And then she asks, can you tell me about grieving? Liz Gilbert tells her these words, the honor in grief is the rejoicing of having loved somebody so much that their departure breaks you. You see, we grieve because we love. And if you've ever been to a funeral and you are filled with sadness, it's because you love the person that is being buried at that funeral. If you didn't love them, you wouldn't be filled with that much sadness, would you? And the more that you grieve, the more that you feel that loss means it's the more that you loved that person. And if we believe that the resurrection is inspiring, it then doesn't lead us to resolve our grieving. Instead, resurrection leads us to love, which in turn then leads us to grieve. And resurrection then isn't something that solves grieving as much as it leads us closer into grieving. And if we take Resurrection Sunday out of its context and just tell people about Jesus' resurrection without talking about Holy Saturday, well, then grieving appears to be a mark of those who are weak in faith. It is for this reason we must include Holy Saturday and recognize the sacred honor of grieving the loss of the beautiful people that we love. Which brings us to our third word, which is death. A few nights ago, in the midst of this pandemic, I woke up in the middle of the night. Now, I can't remember what I was dreaming about, but my heart was racing, my palms were sweating. And for the next 30 to 40 minutes, I was having a full-blown panic attack. The cause of my anxiety was I was painfully aware that I was very scared to die. And I was convinced that I had the virus and that I was going to be dying alone and that this might be my last night in my house. <sighs> um, it was not a night that was easy. It's <laughs> the only way to say it. Um, I was able to, after some time, calm down to focus on the fact that I was still there um, to try and do any trick that I might be able to, to try and get past this. Uh, it took a little while, but I was able to go back to sleep after several hours. The, there was nothing quite as bad as that first 30 to 40 minutes. Um, the next morning I woke up and I had to acknowledge my fear. And the fear that I acknowledge is the fact that I realized I was very afraid to die. And I'm about to tell you what happened next, but I want to tell you that if you've experience that fear of death, especially during the season of the virus, you can't really go anywhere unless you first acknowledge that you are afraid. And once I could acknowledge that I was afraid of death, I started to ask myself a very important question. 
Why am I afraid to die? Now, most Christians I know would tell me that Resurrection Sunday tells us the good news of hope and life and how we don't need to be afraid of death. And I've heard that all of my life. But what I haven't heard is people talk about Holy Saturday and how Holy Saturday tells us if you are afraid of death, then you are living in Holy Saturday. You're actually living part of the resurrection story. After all, in John chapter 20, we read about how all the disciples are huddling in their homes because they're afraid to die. And think about all the people that knew Jesus and knew that he was in the tomb that day. On Saturday, they weren't saying, oh man, I am so unafraid of death. No, the majority of them were afraid to die just like I was just a couple of nights ago. And I have to tell you that recently, in the last couple of weeks, I've read this book called Confessions of a Funeral Director by a man named Caleb Wilde. Now, Caleb Wilde is a sixth, a sixth generation funeral director in his family on his dad's side. What makes things even more interesting is that his mom is a fourth generation funeral director on her side. (laughs) This man's family is swimming in death. And he's been a funeral director for 10 years, and he decided to write a book about what death has taught him and what he has seen. And this book is fantastic. I highly recommend it. And there are three stories I want to share with you on the podcast at this time. The first story is about a nursing home. Caleb Wilde in the book talks about how funeral directors often go to nursing homes because, well, I think it's rather obvious, isn't it? And he says the protocol at most nursing homes is all the same. They all have a back door with a buzzer. And when a funeral director arrives at the nursing home, they are directed to the back door. They buzz the front desk and they say, "Um, the funeral director is here to pick up the body. The, The receptionist hears that. They quietly say, okay. And they tread back softly to the back door and they let the funeral director in very quietly. They then sneak around the guests and the other staff to the body where the person has recently deceased. The funeral director collects the body and then wheels them back as silently and as quickly as possible so as not to disturb the other people around them. According to Caleb Wilde, this is common practice at most nursing homes he serves. But there was a new nursing home who showed up into town and he was called to pick up a body And so he was on his way driving over there. And so he called them and he said, hey, can you tell me where your back door is? And the director of the nursing home said, oh, we don't have a back door. We have a front door policy with death. And he said, a front door policy of death. What does that mean? And they said, when you get here, just come through the front door. And so Caleb Wilde arrived at the nursing home. He walked through the front door. He said it was a really rather stunning reversal. And he met with the director of the nursing home. She led him back all the way to this woman's body that had recently passed away. And while they were walking back there, the the director of the nursing home told Caleb Wilde stories about the woman he was about to pick up. And as he was getting the body ready, he placed her on the stretcher and he was about to wheel her out. And before he headed out, the director of the nursing home said, wait a second, we do an honor call each time a body leaves our nursing home facility. 
And so she quickly left and she made an announcement on the loudspeaker that people could come and say their goodbyes to Mrs. So-and-so as Caleb Weil would be leaving out the front door. And so after a few moments, the director of the nursing home returned to the room with Caleb Wilde and he said, okay, you can go out now. And Caleb Wilde walked out in front of this room and the hallway was lined with the staff and residents who waved and said goodbye, some through tears, some through smiles, as this person left the nursing home. Caleb Wilde talked about how he'd never felt quite as much dignity in his job as he did that day. A second story that I'd like to share with you um, involves the death of an eight-year-old girl named Sarah. Now at six in the morning on one day, Caleb Weil was called to the home of Sarah by Sarah's parents. And of course, picking up any young child for a death is a tragic experience, which Caleb Weil writes eloquently about. So he drove over to this house to pick up the deceased body of a young girl. And he walked into the home as he is often invited to do. And he goes back to Sarah's bedroom and all of Sarah's family is there. And it's this moving scene, but all of a sudden something seems wrong to this funeral director. He can't figure out where Sarah's body is. And so the family is talking like Sarah's in the room, but he can't figure out where Sarah is. He tries to remain calm. He tries not to ask too quickly where her body is. But after about an hour goes by, there's this pause in the conversation. It becomes apparent it's time for him to take Sarah. And so he kind of fumbles his way through asking the question, I, I'm sorry, where is Sarah? And it's at this time that Sarah's mom says, oh, she's right here. And it's apparent that Sarah's mom is holding Sarah this entire time, cradling her sad to see her go. And he said it was deeply moving to him because of how much this mother obviously loved her daughter. The third story that I want to tell you about is he talks about how it's not often you see funeral directors crying because, you know, funeral directors are at funerals all the time. But he says he remembers this one time he cried when there was an elderly woman who was being memorialized at this funeral and the family was sharing stories and all of these things, but there was, this was a large funeral, so it was easy for people to get lost in the crowd. And he said uh, one person that got lost in the crowd was probably the deceased's granddaughter. She was probably seven or eight years old. And as all of these family members were coming by for a viewing, this granddaughter started crying, and no one really paid attention to her. And a minute went by, two minutes went by. After about five minutes, another granddaughter, this mourner's cousin, saw her cousin weeping. And this other cousin was probably six or seven, you know, just a little bit younger than the one who was weeping. And she sees her cousin and immediately grabs a tissue and walks over to her cousin who is crying and offers the tissue and puts her arm around her cousin and they both cry together at the loss of their grandmother. And when he describes the scene, he talks about how it was so meaningful because here was a young child who intuitively knew what it meant to comfort and grieve alongside someone else. 
And she wasn't instructed to do this by a parent. She just knew. And after telling that story, Caleb Wilde then writes these words. He says, we have this assumption that heaven and death are total opposites, that one can't dwell with the other like oil and water. But my experience has been different because love is born around death. Heaven makes its quiet entrance in these small but beautiful moments. Death and heaven are connected in ways we might not be able to see or feel. Death and heaven are like dirt and flour. And when heaven happens here on earth, death is somewhere in the mix, allowing heaven's beauty to bleed through into the here and now. Not in spite of death, but sometimes because of death. Today here on earth, in the midst of death and pain, heaven exists. Man, I love those words. In the midst of death and pain, heaven exists. With those words in mind, I'd like to return to the story about where I am afraid of death and I started asking the question, why am I afraid to die? I think that there's actually a lot of life in this question. It's rather counterintuitive, but I have found that since that moment, I've started living my life differently because I tried my best to answer the question, why am I afraid to die? And while I came up with several different answers for why I am afraid to die, I'd like to share five of them with you this morning and talk about why it is that I came to the realization that I'm afraid to die and how it's helpful to answer this question for you. And as I go through these five answers, I want you to know that they're going to increase in importance and significance. And just a reminder, this isn't a complete list, but I have found answering it has really helped me in this time. So the first reason that I'm afraid to die is because I love the Fast and Furious franchise and Fast and Furious 9 looks fantastic. And due to this virus, the release date has been pushed back one whole year. And I really want to see this movie. <laughs> and I'm afraid to die because I'd hate to not see this movie. And I tell you this, and, and while you may say this is the shallowest, dumbest reason to want to live, I will tell you it's still a reason to want to live. And what it speaks to is the fact that I take joy in seeing these movies. There is something good to me about seeing these movies. And if I miss out on them, I feel like I am missing out on something that is good. Another reason I'm afraid to die is because one of the best perks of my job is being able to officiate weddings. No one tells you this when you go into the ministry, but when you, when you get to officiate a wedding, you get the best seat in the house at a wedding. And I will tell you, there's something that is sacred. There's something that's holy. It's indescribable to be able to stand next to someone, next to a couple as they pledge their lives and their best to each other. I currently have two weddings on the docket for 2020. I'm supposed to do Lauren and Jared's wedding and I'm supposed to do um, Holly and David's wedding. And I would feel like I am missing out if something happened and I couldn't officiate those weddings. And when I asked the question, why am I afraid to die? I, I answered, I would hate to miss out on these weddings because they bring me so much joy. And it reminds me that when I eventually go to these weddings in the future, not to view these as 
networking opportunities or opportunities to advance my career, but that this is the good stuff that makes my career worth doing and to sit there and be present and enjoy it. The third reason I am afraid to die is because I love my work at Paradox Church. Each year at Paradox has been better than the last. And I, the staff that we have right now is just incredible. And I love to see what they come up with. Not only that, but the church is in a really good place. People really enjoy being part of the church. We've made differences. We've made some mistakes, but we've learned from those mistakes. And I love seeing where Paradox goes week in and week out. And if I missed out on that, well, it tells me how valuable all of this is in my life right now, doesn't it? I would hate to miss out seeing where Paradox goes next year and the year after and how we grow and become the embodiment of Christ's love in Redlands, California today. There is something thrilling and inherently good in watching this community grow. And it's valuable to me and worth living for. Which brings us to the fourth reason, which is the number two reason why I want to stay alive. And that is my kids, Maya and Bodhi. I remember when I was answering this question, I, I, really, I really thought about how I desperately want to see my kids grow up. My daughter is six, my son is three. And it can be so easy to write off parenting as an obligation or to take parenting for granted. But then there are these moments like we experienced last week with all the rain we had in Southern California, where Maya, Bodhi, and my wife went outside in our rain gear and our kids jumped in puddles for hours. Oh my gosh. We had to pull them in because they were sopping wet. Not only that, but my daughter, Maya, who's six years old, has just recently learned how to ride a bike without training wheels, and I am so proud of her. And my son, who is three, has been inspired by his older sister and has also learned how to ride his bike without training wheels. And oh, there's something precious about seeing them go and learn how to balance a bike because it reminds me that one of the things that I'm living for is to watch my kids grow up because it's beautiful. It's worthwhile. It's good. It's holy. And I love, love, love being their dad. Which brings us to the most important reason that I want to continue to live. The number one reason I am afraid to die is because I love every day I have with my wife, Kimmy. We were married almost 10 years ago on September 5, 2010, and we have been through a lot since that day. But we never, ever, ever imagined this season of quarantine and being home with the kids all the time <laughs> and trying our best to stay positive and happy in the midst of an overwhelming global pandemic. And when I think about how life is temporary, and the fact that there's no guarantee that we are going to live to see tomorrow. And you have to take each day with what it's worth because you just don't know what tomorrow might bring. When I think of my wife, every day with her leaves me asking for just one more day. Because being with her is the sweetest and most joyful experience I have encountered 
in this lifetime? And when I answer the question, why am I afraid to die? It's because I want just one more day with Kimmy. My brothers, my sisters, my friends, heaven exists in the presence of death. And when we have the courage to answer the Holy Saturday question, why am I afraid to die? We find that the answer tells us what is good about life. We find that the answer inspires us to go back to the things that we love that are worth living for and place a priority on those things to remind ourselves that tomorrow isn't guaranteed. So be present today. And that this life is ultimately a gift from our creator. We realize that Holy Saturday inspires us to be present today in the face of death because heaven exists in the presence of death. May we remember that when we doubt, when we grieve, and when we die, God walked us through all of this on Holy Saturday. And in the Holy Saturday we are experiencing in 2020, may we have the courage and the love and the awareness to see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.